Um, a little bit different morning. Once every probably five to six, seven weeks, we're going to do communion as kind of a corporate body. And a lot of times we'll kind of attach this on to the end of the service, but other times we'll kind of build the whole service around communion. And this is one of those times. So this is the goal of this morning. I want to try to explain what we're doing, how it works, um, what's the proper way to kind of move into this. And then we'll sing some more at the end and allow you to come up to the tables and um, take communion with your family, that, that sort of a thing. And, and here's my hope for you. I think today could be a real blessing for you. I'm not exactly sure how God got you into this building today, um, but I'm sure about this, that, that this has the potential to be a real freeing morning for you. Just a really good morning where the Holy Spirit um, really can do some business in your heart and in your life and, and kind of move in you. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. You might flip there. And then I'm also going to get you to stick a thumb in Mark 15. 1 Corinthians 11 and Mark 15. We're going to be a couple other places, but the rest of them will be on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 11, Mark chapter 15. So we're taking a break from Acts this morning. And so uh, we'll, we'll be back in the future. 1 Corinthians 11 is where we're starting out. Verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Give you another second and then we'll get rolling. It's going to be up on the screen for you if you can't find it or if you uh, need a bell out. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23 starts out this way. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. And you might circle that word remembrance. Verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. Again, here's that word in remembrance of me. You might underline or circle that. If you think about maybe two key words, um, when it comes down to the Lord's Supper or communion, this would be the first one, this idea of remembrance. This idea of that we've got the ability to remember. Now, now here's the beauty of, of remembering. It is one of God's greatest gifts to you. Just the simple ability to remember. Now, like when I think about um, just memories in my past, like just think about some of those. They just like look back over the corridor of, of life, right? And, and just remember some of the, like I remember as a junior in high school, I just won a state championship in wrestling. And I thought this was it. I mean, you know, it's just one of those memories that will never leave, you know, I could, those memories. Um, I'll never forget this one, um, that moment when I'm standing in front of a church and they open these back doors, and here comes Laura down the aisle, right? Like, if you're a guy, that's one of those forever ingrained. And you look at that girl, and she's got that what-am-I-doing look on her face, you know? I, yeah? And so I'll never forget that, that moment, though, of looking up that aisle and seeing my beautiful bride. And so when you think of the, the gift of remembering, I mean, that is a beautiful thing that God has given you. Now, here's what's interesting. If you start reading through the Old Testament, you're going to see over and over again where God is going to command his people to remember. Like, set these stones up here. Like, he's going to command them over and over to remember what he has done. Probably the best example of this is the Passover. You go to Exodus 13, you see this example of, of God using the Passover. And then he says this, you remember this day. Okay, so he institutes this Passover, this one-time-a-year meal, that this family would, would come together and they would partake of this meal. Now, here's what I would see happening. A dad sitting around the table with his family and looking over maybe at his son and saying, let me tell you why we're taking this, why we're doing this, what this thing's about. There was a day that we were in bondage in Egypt, and God rained down some plagues and freed us. 
um, we were starving to death in the wilderness and manna appeared out of nowhere. Okay, we were about to get annihilated by the Egyptian army and all of a sudden God parts the Red Sea and we walk through on dry ground. So you see that picture of God saying, you remember this. You're going to have this Passover so you can pass this down to your family. So, so you as a husband can teach this to your wives and your children. Okay, so now, now the question might be, why would God command us to remember? And here's, I think, the, the answer to that question. When we remember the great acts of God in our past, it stirs in us a belief for great acts of God in the present and the future. Um, four or five months ago now, um, Laura and I are sitting on a couch and we're doing this whole thing of, are we going to plant a church or not? Are we in? Are we out? And I remember sitting there thinking, like we had to raise at that point about $150,000, just kind of depending on how you looked at it, in about a six-week period. And I, I remember almost just laughing about that. Like, how does that even happen in six weeks? And so... Um, Let me tell you what gave us the confidence to move in a moment like that. We would just take like this, we would just turn around, like turn from the present and just look at the past. And here's what we would see. We would see God's faithfulness to us over the years. And like, I I think this would be our consistent story is that God has never asked us to do something that he didn't equip us for one and resources for number two. He's never done that for us. Every time God has called us to make a move, he's always resourced it and he's always equipped us to handle it. And and so you've got all these great acts of God in your past. And here's why God says, remember those things. Remember them. Because it's going to stir in you confidence for future acts of God. Okay, now specifically, here's what he's talking about in this. He's saying, I want you to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. I want you to remember the cross. And so we have an obligation here this morning to specifically, not just remember things that God has done in your past, but to specifically remember the great act of God on the cross in all of our past. I mean, we've got, a, we've got an, an obligation to do that this morning, to make sure our hearts are centered around this fact that God died on the cross for us. That we have a great savior that was slaughtered for your sin to absorb the wrath that was meant for you. Okay, so we've got this obligation to make sure our mind and our heart goes there for a second. Okay, and then let's keep reading here. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I think it's just worth stopping on on this for just a second. Um, Okay, he's saying, Paul's going to make it real clear that when you take the Lord's Supper, Like when you have communion as a corporate body or individual, as a family, when you do that, you are proclaiming the death of the Lord. So so we get to exalt this morning the gospel. We get to lift up and kind of put on center stage the cross of Christ. And, And isn't it, like it's one of these great paradoxes that a death can bring life. And so we get to put on center stage this death of Jesus that at the end of the day, if you're a believer, if you're a Christ follower in here, at the end of the day, that death of Jesus has made life possible for you, right? And so we get to put on center stage the cross of Christ and we get to proclaim that. And here's what I love about the scriptures is that you have all of these open invitations, all of these open-ended, like a Roman sin is going to say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
You've got a John 3.16 that's going to say, um, okay, you've got this great love of God that sent his son into the world that those who believe will no longer perish but have eternal life. So you've got these open-ended invitations to come and partake of the cross. Okay, so we get to lift up the cross and then we get to invite in. So let me just stop here and say this. If you have never swam in the waters of the cross, you have never stepped over the line of faith, God entreats you, he pleads with you this morning, open-ended invitation, come and swim in those waters. Come and, and partake of the blessings of Jesus. Come, come and live there. Joyfully submit your life there. I mean, that is where salvation is found. It is not found in a church service. It is not found in your moral behavior. It's not found in you reading the scriptures. It is found in the cross. So Jesus this morning is inviting in. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. And it's an open-ended invitation for you to partake of that death. That is how we're saved, right? That is how we are made right with God. Okay, look at verse 26 again. He says this, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And then he's going to say, I I think these last three words are there for our sake to build urgency in us. Like, look what he says. Um, Proclaim the Lord's death until, last three words, until he comes. I mean, wouldn't we all agree that in the midst of the grind of life, I mean, just look at your last week. For me, it was crazy, out of control. Isn't it hard sometime in the grind of life to keep a zeal for Jesus? I mean, isn't it easy to kind of coast? And isn't it easy to become complacent? And isn't it easy to put a lot of things in the center of your life that don't need to be there? Isn't that an easy thing to do? And so Paul is saying, listen, there will be a day that Jesus returns. And so for you and I in here, it's either. We've got one of two options. Either we die and see Jesus or he comes back and we see Jesus. Net result is the same. There will be a day that we stand before our great God and King Everything is laid bare. It's us before him. And that ought to, I think it's in there to to stir urgency, to stir a zeal for Jesus, to stir that this is not a game. Like us coming here and us, us worshiping, us engaging in worship, us reading the scriptures, us living well for Jesus, us sharing our faith, us proclaiming the death of the Lord. That's not a game. This is life or death, heaven and hell. Wouldn't we agree? So I think it's in there to say there will be a day soon that Jesus, like we are before Jesus until he comes. Okay, so, so we've got this first, this first word, remembrance. And here, here's what I want to do. Um, I, I want to pause a little bit different. I, I want to direct you to Mark chapter 15. And I want to allow you to read this passage just by yourself. We're just going to push, push pause And just allow you to read this. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it's going to be on the screen. James will just kind of go, or Rachel will just kind of go in a readable, sort of a time, timely manner, kind of coming down through this passage. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you, Mark 15, it'll be up on the screen for you. I want to invite you to read this passage, Mark 15, 16 through 39. Just where you are. And and here's what I want it to do in us this morning. I, I want it to use it to stir in us remembrance. For our gaze to be directed at the cross, for our gaze to be directed at the gospel, at Jesus, proclaiming his death. So why don't you take a second to read that passage. You can share Bible with the person beside you, read it on the screen, whatever you want to do there.
Okay, so there's this obligation when you, when you have communion to remember, to make sure your gaze is fixed on the cross. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay, so the Bible definitely lays a seriousness over what's happening. Like, th- this is a pretty solemn thing, scripturally. And so what makes it right or wrong or, or good or bad has nothing to do with kind of the, the logistics of, do you, do, you know, do you do them separately? Do you dip the bread in the... Like, it has nothing to do with that. Okay, it's talking about this inner issue here. So, so here's, I think, the, the weight of this this morning. Is that you can do this this morning in a way that would pronounce judgment and kind of heap judgment on you. Or you can do this in such a way that it's a great blessing and a great benefit to you. I mean, you can do this in a way this morning that it stirs a great affection for Jesus. And it has a real, produces a real benefit and a blessing for your life. Okay, and it's going to be the key in the next verse here, verse 28 and 29. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, so right and wrong is an inner issue this morning. So the Bible is going to say you need to examine yourself. You need to take an honest look, like put the mirror in front of you and take an honest look at yourself before Jesus. Like be honest with yourself this morning. Okay, so it's going to introduce kind of this next word. So if you have remembrance over here, you have repentance over on this other side. I mean, those would be the two kind of key words that make communion what it is. So we remember, we fix our gaze on the cross, and then we repent. Okay, now when you think of the word repentance, like there's a lot of confusion with it. I mean, here's typically kind of what we think of as repentance. Um, Our hand got caught in the cookie jar. We get it slapped and we're embarrassed. And we maybe cry. Okay, that's the idea of repentance. We get, we're sorry for um, maybe the shame it it produces. We're sorry for the embarrassment it produces. But here's the problem. That isn't repentance. Repentance is this change of mind about God, life, and sin. Okay, repentance is I have got a holy and a good father, a good God. He died on the cross, slaughtered in my stead. And I have sinned. I have willfully rebelled against him. And I am not sorry that I got caught, but I'm sorry that I have offended the heart of God. I'm sorry that I've grieved his heart. Okay, that's the idea of repentance. It's a change about life, God, and sin. Okay, one of my favorite examples of this is in Nehemiah. You don't have to flip there. Let me kind of catch up and I'll put the scriptures on the screen. We'll be using them. In Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah is a cupbearer and kind of a government official. God appears to him and says, Nehemiah, we have got to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. So he leaves where he is, Susa. He goes to Jerusalem. In 52 days, he rebuilds the walls, reconstructs the gates. So now you've got a city that's protected. 150,000 people move into this city. Here's the first thing they do. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra, he stands up and he preaches a five to six hour sermon. On the books of Moses. Five to six hours, right? I mean, that's testing the attention span here. And so um, he, he preaches this sermon and authentic repentance breaks out. Revival is had among a group of people. And just as an aside, if you want to know how to bring personal revival to your heart, the key in doing that is reading the scriptures. I mean, that is it. So they stand up, they read the scripture, God rains down conviction and repentance breaks out amongst the people. 
Okay, now this is what you see happen. And I think these would be the two components when you think about repentance that make repentance what it is. You can't just have one. It's got to be both of these. And here's the first thing you see in Nehemiah 9. They had confession. Like they confessed their sins publicly. There was public confession that happened. Okay, in Nehemiah 9, here's what it says in verse 2. Those of, of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. And this is what it said. They stood in their places. This is after they had read the book of the law. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and their wickedness of their fathers. Okay, this is the first part of, of repentance. There is active confession that takes place. And you know what the problem in all of us in this room is? We would much rather suppress it than confess it. We would much rather stuff it down than allow it to come to the surface where it can be honestly dealt with. Verse 3, it says this, They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So a part of repentance is actively allowing things sin to come to the surface where it can be dealt with confession okay it doesn't stop there so you've got this this part of it of allowing things to bubble to the surface and then you've got this next part of it we'll call it covenant where there is a resolve for a new way of living so you've got confession okay i'm allowing things to come up to the surface where they can be dealt with on the other side there is a covenant there is a resolve to live differently Okay, in the Old Testament, you've got, like, one of the first pictures of covenant is the covenant of marriage in Genesis 2 and 3. So you've got this picture of a man and a wife making a covenant before God and each other. Okay, now, if you go back to the marriage day, that, that wedding vow, like the centerpiece of the covenant, and a covenant always has obligations, blessings, and benefits. So you, you go back to your marriage vows, the obligations of the covenant between you and your wife. This is what that does not sound like. It doesn't sound like for Laura and I. Rodney, do you take Laura to be your wife? I mean, slave. I mean, to be your servant, to wait on your every need. It doesn't sound like that, does it? It sounds just the opposite. It sounds like this, Rodney, do you take Laura to be your wife for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, sickness and in health for as long as you both shall live? I mean, it sounds like I am willfully laying down my life, joyfully doing it. For her benefit and for her sake. Okay, that's what the obligation of a covenant sounds like. And here's the beauty of that. It's a joyful obligation. Like, I'm not doing that begrudgingly. I mean, I'm doing that willfully, joyfully. It brings great blessing and great benefit on the back end of those obligations. Okay, so you've got, like, that picture, th this blessing, this, this obligation, that is in their mind. When they think of covenant, when they think of a binding agreement, now listen to what it says. At the end of chapter 9, it says this in verse 38. It's going to be on the screen for you. In view of all this, because of this sermon that was just preached, we just read through the law, God has rained down conviction, we have confessed our sin. In view of all this, it says this. We are making a binding agreement. We are making a covenant before God. We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So you've got this idea of covenant, a resolve for a new way of living. Okay, now this is what I think is interesting. If you look at verse uh, 39 here, um, you've got putting it in writing and our leaders. You might circle that word, leaders. So I want to talk to the guys for just a second here. Here is my hope for my family, right? Uh, I've got two little, little kids now and, and I've got Laura, my wife. My hope for them 
is that their life would be marked by continual repentance. My wife and my kids are not perfect. They're going to sin. And here is my hope for them when they sin. That the Holy Spirit would bring conviction to their heart. They would confess it. And they would make a covenant for a new way of living. That their life would be marked by that. Conviction, confession, and then covenant. Repentance. Okay, now men in this room. If I want to see that in my family, God has called me to demonstrate it as the leader of my family. If I want to see that work itself out in my family, if you want to see that happen in your kids, which we all do, don't we? If we want to see that happen there, if you want to see that in your, we have got to be people who demonstrate that. One of the most beautiful things you will do for your family is when you sin, that you will publicly confess that with them and covenant for a new way of living. So let me ask you this question. Are there some areas in life this morning that need to be brought to the surface and there needs to be a covenant, a a resolve for a new way of living? Are there any areas in your life that, that that needs to happen? Okay, let let me go to Psalms 32. It's going to be on the screen for you. If you want to flip there, you can. It's going to be probably easier for you to look up on the screen now. Um, Psalms 32 verse 1 says this. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. We just read that. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. In other words, blessing. Fortunate are them. The blessing of God rests on them. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. There are no lies. There is no hypocrisy. They're not wearing a mask. Blessing, blessed is that person. Fortunate is that person. Verse 2, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit is no deceit. Okay, so he's saying blessed is the man who rather than stuffing it, allows that to bubble up where it can be dealt with, allows that to come to the surface where it can be dealt with. Okay, now notice the contrast here in verse three. When I kept silent, in other words, when I stuffed the sinful actions and attitudes and habits, when I stuffed those things, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Okay, this is a picture of a man who who is stuffing it. I mean, this is the idea of, um, it would be like you, dr- like everywhere you go, like you walking down the street and you're dragging a weight behind you everywhere you go. I mean, this is the guy trying to run a marathon in a hundred degree heat. Wearing a mask is draining. I mean, it is hard work. It sucks the life out of you. And he's saying, listen, here's the contrast. Blessed is this man comes to the surface dealt with. This guy, the guy that stuffs it, the lady who stuffs it, their, their strength is sapped. I mean, it is marathon, 100 degree heat. And then he says this word, Selah. And here's what that means. It just means to pause and think about it. To stop for a second and think about what was just written. Will you close your eyes just for a second? I want to give you a moment just to, to Selah, to stop and to think. You can walk out of here today 
with your sin stuffed. You can do that. It'd be real easy, real natural. I would say it'd be real normal. And the Bible's going to say, you do that and your bones waste away. Or you can confess, allow the Lord to forgive. Bring that to the surface, deal with it. Confess covenant. And you can walk out of here free. I mean, it's liberating. Okay, you can look at verse 5 here. Then the psalmist goes on and says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Is there anything better than having your sin forgiven? I mean, is there anything better than your guilt being dealt with and looked over? I mean, this is why in Acts 3, that uh, as Peter is preaching, he, he encourages the people to repent. And here's what, what he says about it. Repent and be baptized. And he's going to say this, so that you can experience times of refreshment. So that you can be refreshed. That's the picture. You walk out of here with stuffed sin and you are not refreshed. You confess and covenant and you walk out of here refreshed this morning. Okay, last, last place I want to take you is Galatians 5. It's going to be on the screen for you as well. You can go there if you want, though. Either, either way is fine. Um, and this is a passage that I like to look over. And, and when I look over this passage, here's what I'm asking Jesus to do in me. I'm asking him to illuminate these words and bring conviction into my heart so I will know of areas and things that need to be confessed. And so as we read through this list, I mean, this is a laundry list of sinful things is what this is about to be. As we read through this, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Ask Jesus to to make known in you areas that need to be confessed, that need to be brought to the surface, that need to be dealt with. Confession and covenant that need that to happen. Okay, Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, goes like this. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. And then it says this, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. And so he's setting up this picture of when you become a Christian, like when you become a pursuer of God, God makes you a new creation. Like it is a new you. But there is this lingering sinful nature in us, this this flesh And they are at war with one another. That's why we use words like battle, like war, like those sorts of of things. Like we use that terminology because that's how the Bible depicts it. And and if you were to say, you know what, I don't really see that being a war. Uh, Just try this. Go tomorrow and don't sin. Right? I mean, that, that really clearly illustrates the fact that we are in a bloody battle. That we have got this sinful nature and we have got this new nature. And they are at war with one another, in conflict with one another. Verse 18, but if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Okay, so I'm about to read 15, 16 different terms here. And and here, let me encourage you with this. Don't just look at it for like the full grown, wow, that's huge in my life. Because for a lot of us in here, it's not going to be full grown yet. Like when we talk about anger, it's probably not going to be a full grown, I've just thrown somebody across the room thing. But you know what you're going to find? You're going to find, find seeds of anger in your heart. They haven't grown into this huge tree yet, but you've got it sprouting in your life, right? So look at where these seeds are. I'm always amazed at this. Um, in counseling situations, here's what you hardly ever get. 
You hardly ever get the guy walk into your office and say, um, man, I, I see like this little glimpse of lust in me and I need to deal with it now. You know what you get? This is what walks in the office. Um, what walks in the office is I've just had an affair. Now, isn't that amazing? If we would just kind of dig in when it is small, it would be so much easier for us to deal with, right? And so make sure you are looking at these small areas of your life that are really easy to overlook. Okay, so here we go. Galatians 5, starting in verse 19 here. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Are you tied to any of these? These need to be confessed, repented of. Number one, sexual immorality. Having sex with someone that you're not married to, taking parts of them without taking all of them. Um, how about this one? Pornography. It's over a $13 billion a year industry. 25% of all web searches deal with this. It's not just a guy problem. Okay, so I, and it's funny, like when you mention pornography in a room, it typically gets quiet. Because it is everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, and let me just throw this out there. I think it would kind of cover this idea of adultery. And I, I want to encourage um, just our married guys in here. It, it is easy to allow doors to open in your life that would allow things to walk through them that don't need to walk through them. Right? And so I just want to encourage you, if there are any open doors to people that are not your spouse, to make sure you close them. To make sure there are nails in them. To make sure those things are locked shut. So man, if there are any seeds growing there, to make sure those are dealt with. Immorality. And number two, this is going to be kind of the, the attitude, the mind behind immorality. It's going to say impurity. Okay, this is, this is the attitude. This is the mind that, that carries out immorality. And so when you think of the standard of, of purity in the scriptures, it's not just a physical standard. It is a mental, a thought life standard. Like if you want to defeat lust, if you want to gain victory over lust in your life, that all starts in the mind. What you feed will win. If you feed purity, purity will win. If you feed impurity, impurity will win. Impurity. Number three, debauchery. Probably not a word you use every day. I don't. Um, but it's this idea of we have gone so far into sin that we've thrown our hands up and stopped fighting. Is there any area in life where you have run so far into it that you've just thrown your hands up and said, I'm, I'm done. It's got me. Number four, idolatry. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism. The opposite of Christianity, of, of God worship, of Jesus, the opposite of Christianity is idolatry. It's placing anything else in the primary seat of importance in your life. So, so let me ask this question to you. Is there any area of your life this morning that has crept its way before Jesus, before God in your life? Is there any area that, have, that has just quietly moved Jesus to the side and it has become central? Possessions, like when something you own owns you. Family, even good things can become idols, right? So is there anything in your life that has taken the primary seat of importance, idolatry, witchcraft? How about this word, hatred? When you want the absolute worst for somebody else, like their name comes up in conversation and you instantly have this picture of, you get, yeah, you see it. Like their name comes up and like this hatred, this intense feeling of, 
I want to kill somebody right now. That, that whole thing bubbles to the surface. Hatred. Number seven, this is what hatred produces, discord or strife. Um, this is hatred turned into action. I mean, this is what hatred produces. It produces discord in our life. It produces factions, divisions. Okay, now, now here, here's like a Matthew 5 is going to say this. When you think of the Lord's Supper or bringing your offering before the Lord, Matthew 5 is going to say this. Don't bring your offering before the Lord if you've got a problem with somebody else. You lay your gift at the altar. You go and deal with that. You go and restore that relationship. Then you come and offer, offer your gift. Okay, so, so Jesus takes this really seriously. That we don't have discord and strife in our life. We're not at war with other people. I mean, is there anybody right now that you're at war with? I mean, you are in the, the midst of a battle with. Jesus is saying, let go of it. Throw down the arms. Number eight, jealousy. And jealousy can be even a more, it can be more than I wish I had that. It can be. This is like the darkest form of it. Is I'm just mad that they have that. I mean, is there any seeds of jealousy in your life? Um, number nine, fits of rage or anger. I mean, has anger, has it got a root that is growing down in your life? Impatience. Number 10, selfish ambition. And has the world started to revolve around you? Here's the rough thing about selfishness. Is everybody can see it in us, but it's really hard to see in ourselves. I mean, has selfish ambition started to take root? Number 11, dissensions or factions. Are you a person that keeps things stirred up within other people? Number 13, um, envy. Any petty disagreements with people? I mean, did you bring in maybe any petty disagreements with your wife, with your kids this morning? 14, drunkenness. When we try to fill a God-sized void with something artificial, right? And then he's going to say this, orgies, and then he says the like. And the like, I think, is just a way to say anything else you want to throw in there. We could talk about pride. We could talk about unforgiveness. We could talk about bitterness. We could talk about gossip. It just kind of is this catch-all and everything else. So is there anything in you that needs to be confessed, needs to be repented of this morning? Last scripture for you, James 5, 16 goes like this. I think this is just a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful way for us to kind of bring this down this morning. James 5 says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. One of the greatest gifts that God has given us is other people. That we can be honest before, honest with. That when we confess, they don't look at us like we're crazy but they see it in themselves too. It can help us walk through issues and things. Um, I read this story uh, probably a year or so ago. Um, this little boy in, Cal- or in uh, Florida, he was playing kind of along this, this drainage ditch and um, it, kind of in his backyard. He's playing in it and an alligator literally grabs his leg and is pulling him in this drainage ditch. And this guy, little guy, he's probably like five, six, seven years old, something like that. He starts screaming bloody murder. His uncle, a couple of houses down, they hear the scream, right? They hear the scream. The uncle makes a beeline for for his nephew. He grabs his nephew and literally wrestles him out of this alligator's grasp. Now, here's how I want to end this morning. You know what's amazing about us? Is that we have got this alligator called sin attached to a lot of us. And rather than screaming for bloody murder, we are quietly letting it eat us. Amen?
confession. Covenant. What needs to come to the surface. This is how we finish this morning. Kevin's going to play a couple of songs for us. And we're just going to give you time. Um, We're going to kind of clear out here probably two songs or so. Um, And here's what you get the opportunity to do. You can use this front as an altar if you like. You can come down and pray with your family, with your wife, with your husband. Um, You can use this however you want to. You can read some scripture. But here's what we're going to encourage you to do. Before you take the Lord's Supper, before you take communion, we, like, it is for believers in right standing with God. So we want to make sure that that's you, that you are a Christ follower in right standing. So if things need to be confessed this morning, man, use this time for that. I mean, this is a beautiful moment for you to allow yourself to walk out of here free. Sins forgiven, guilt forgiven, right? So this is a great moment for you. So as they play, we're going to invite you to do business with God. I'm going to be up here. Um, If I can pray over you or do anything for you, I'd love to do that. But I I want to encourage you to use this time for your benefit as a blessing to you to get right before God as we do something very special, as we remember the body, the blood of Jesus. Let me read this passage, then I'll pray. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. God, we love you. And God, we thank you for the cross. God, as a corporate body, we we have our gaze fixed on that this morning. God, we tell you that we're remembering the beauty of, of the dreadful cross. God, the beauty of the cross that saves, the beauty of the cross that forgives, the beauty of the cross that absorbs the wrath meant for us. God, we we tell you that we're remembering that. We're thankful for that this morning. And God, we also want to, to be people who live a life of repentance. So God, I pray that you would bring that to this room. God, that we would be people actively confessing sin and actively making covenants for a new way of living. God, give us great grace in that. God, we need you for that. That doesn't happen on our own. We need your Holy Spirit, the gospel, to wash over our heart to make that possible. So God, I pray for our daddies in here, that they would live a life of repentance. For our moms in here, that they would live a life of repentance. For our students, for our singles, for our college-age guys in here, God, that they would live a life of repentance. God, may that start this morning. May that be, may that happen in in here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you're going to take the the bread, you'll dip it in the juice, and then that, that will be your communion this morning. So why don't you stand with us as we sing.